0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. British Prime Minister Theresa May is on a tour of Europe in an effort to save her Brexit deal, not to mention her own political future. European Union leaders have already made it clear that the deal is not for renegotiation. So what can they do to help Mrs May achieve her goal and prevent the UK from tumbling out of the EU next March with no deal, a scenario everybody wants to avoid? It may look like mission impossible for Mrs May, but our Europe editor Patrick Smith thinks the EU does have some room to manoeuvre here and he'll explain why in just a moment. Later, I'll be talking to Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, about Donald Trump's legal woes, as the Mueller investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 US presidential election draws to a close. But it's Brexit first, and today, Tuesday, was supposed to be D-Day, the day Theresa May put her Brexit deal with the EU before the House of Commons for a vote. I've listened very
1: carefully to what has been said in this chamber and out of it. (laughs) To what has been said in this chamber and out of it by members from all sides.
0: Facing certain defeat, however, Mrs May pulled the plug yesterday on that vote and announced she was going to Brussels to seek reassurances about the issue that has proved the most intractable throughout the Brexit negotiations and that is the Northern Ireland backstop. Brexiteers and the Conservative Party want Mrs May to renegotiate the withdrawal treaty she agreed with the EU last month. But today, European leaders knock that idea on the head. European Commission President, John-Claude Juncker. The deal we have achieved is the best deal possible. It's the only deal possible.
1: And so we cannot...
0: There is no room whatsoever for And the European Parliament's Brexit negotiator, Guy Verhofstadt. Whatever the request may be, we will never let down our Irish friends. It's out of question to renegotiate the backstop on Ireland. And secondly, if she is looking in the political declaration for a closer relationship with the European Union, as Manfred Weber has said, to avoid the use of this backstop, there will be no obstacle. There will be no problem to do so both speaking in the European Parliament, today insisting that the deal is the deal. I'm joined now from Brussels by our Europe editor, Patrick Smith. Patty, a very clear message there from EU leaders that renegotiation of the withdrawal deal is not an option. But Theresa May herself didn't mention renegotiation yesterday. She talked about reassurances. Are there reassurances the EU might be able to offer that could make a material difference to the deal that she can bring back to the House of Commons?
1: Yeah, I think she's completely on side with the uh, idea that she can't renegotiate the, the main deal. But as Ireland learned uh, in a couple of referendums when it rejected European treaties, it's possible always to go back and get little bits added on to the end of treaties, by the way, by way of prot- protocols or declarations. And so the British are, ex- are exploring that possibility. Um, the point about the declarations, though, in the past, and it's something that has to be understood, it might be stating the obvious, but it- is all that they can do is clarify what's in the text. They can't change the text. And, and so the Irish declarations that happened at the time of, uh, there was one about uh, Irish neutrality, one about abortion, all they did was reiterate, in fact, uh, the implications of, of the treaty in language for the Irish. Um, that That's what will happen this time. Now, here we have a, a, a particular problem, um, and that is the backstop. And the, Mrs. May made it quite clear in her speech yesterday that she actually understood the logic for the backstop. Uh, she believes it is crucial to maintaining peace on the island of Ireland and uh, she's committed to, to maintaining a commitment to uh, a frictionless border. The problem with the backstop is leaving it and the fear that some Tories are, are manifesting that, that the European Union will keep the uh, British confined in uh, the backstop, uh, force them to remain part of, of the hideous customs union, which they so hate, uh, and which is part of the backstop uh, agreement, and force them indefinitely, uh, make, make it clear that, that um, they can't have anything else uh, instead, unless a deal is signed, which does the backstop's job and better. Uh, that is is quite a, a difficult prospect, and it's quite, a, um, some say, unlikely. But uh, anyway, they, they, there is a way out of the backstop, and it's to do that kind of a deal. In the absence of that kind of a deal, however, the British want a, a right to unilaterally pull out of the backstop.
0: Yeah, and just to get that out of the way, Paddy, actually, I mean, this is something that many in her party are demanding, but can I just, just, I suppose, we can dispense with that. That's not going to happen, is it, this idea of a unilateral, a right of Britain to unilaterally uh, withdraw from the backstop?
1: No, it's not going to happen because it would mean the backstop is nonsense. It, it would mean that it, it, it wasn't a guarantee at all if, if one party could withdraw from it. So that's not acceptable in the slightest. On the other hand, there are ways of posing this issue and discussing this issue, which can make it appear as, as not quite as bad as some Tories are portraying it. Some Tories are saying Britain can be literally held hostage by the European Union and and. Uh, The French President Emmanuel Macron uh, in a speech at the uh, uh, last summit uh, threatened to do precisely that if the British weren't making concessions on on fisheries and French access to to British uh, waters. Uh, That is uh, something that that it is possible to assure the uh, British will not happen. In fact, Macron misunderstood the way in which the Brexit review process will work Um, The Brexit review process will be undertaken by a joint committee uh, which consists of of Britain and the EU. If if that is deadlocked uh, over whether or not Britain should be allowed to withdraw, then it goes to independent arbitration. And my view is that by stressing that independent arbitration, and stressing the credentials of the arbitrators and the the, the the tightness of their mandate to only look at certain issues. Uh, British uh, Brexiteers can be reassured uh, that it won't be the EU which holds them hostage, uh, but some independent body uh, will, will oversee that, that process.
0: And just to clarify, Paddy, does the European Court of Justice have any role in this independent arbitration?
1: No, absolutely not. Because that was uh, a British big fear would, of, the, would, of the British side wouldn't accept uh, the role of the court of of justice will have a role in other aspects of the withdrawal treaty, um, which the British have succeeded in fudging slightly. But uh, in relation to the withdrawal process, uh, from the uh, and the review uh, process on on the backstop, no, no role at all.
0: So that was quite a concession, really, for Brussels to make, wasn't it? In the, in the negotiations, that that something um, that this could actually go to independent arbitration. For in other words, the, the EU side could also, you know, ultimately lose control of this uh, of this process.
1: Yes, I think I think that's true. But I, I think it's also the case that um, they, they they were aware that the British would not be able to sell. Uh, a complete a veto on the part of the uh, EU now the problem is that uh, the the british parliament and the mp's don't appear to be aware of this independent arbitration process and uh, the mrs may has not made an issue of it because she, her preoccupation has been with saying, oh, we're never going to go into this uh, backstop anyway. So it doesn't, you know, that's the critical thing when nobody will likes the backstop. The European Union doesn't like the backstop. We don't like the backstop and we're not going to be part of it if we possibly can help it. Uh, and so she hasn't stressed the mechanics of the withdrawal process. I think it could happen now.
0: And so, Paddy, what might a declaration look like then um, or a reassurance or whatever it would be called um, ultimately? I think it would
1: be just literally a couple of paragraphs and would state uh, that the in this particular suggestion that I, I'm making, it would state that the arbitrators are, are independent and that they have a mandate to only consider certain issues. And those issues would be whether or not the new um, uh, agreement was sufficient to replace the backstop and did its job uh, and also uh, if there was a complaint that the that one side or the other was was actually uh, holding up the negotiating process the the, the arbitrators would have would be able to look at the idea of of fair play and fair dealing uh, which uh, is part of the treaty as well
0: but something that merely seeks to explain the withdrawal agreement um, for, for slow learners, if you like, in the Conservative Party, this that's li- unlikely to be enough, isn't it, to help Mrs May when she goes back to, to London? And I presume there is a willingness, isn't there, on the EU side to help her if they can?
1: Yes, there is. The question is whether they do it immediately or, or they take their time over Christmas to do it. My suspicion is that they uh, will say nice things to her uh, this week uh, and promise that they would work on a on a on a text of reassurance and then the text will appear uh, in 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 the new year uh, because mrs may probably doesn't want to have everything wrapped up this week uh, she's got to prepare quite a long and slow campaign to get those um, dissidents back on side. I and mean, it's It's going to be quite difficult. One of the advantages, though, of postponing the vote is that many MPs had already made the calculation that there was going to be a second vote and that they could vote against her on the first vote uh, and uh, then support her perhaps on the second if things, things were, were a little bit better. Now, with only one vote in, in this particular pro- process in the Commons, those people will be forced uh, to perhaps say, well, actually, this is as good as it's going to get, and there's no point in voting against her now. So she probably has given herself uh, a, a few votes simply by uh, postponing the vote
0: and and again, just to come back then to the, the declaration that, that could be agreed would that be legally binding paddy or is it um, what kind of status does a declaration have when it 's tacked onto a a, a treaty such so as this withdrawal agreement
1: is yes it it could have uh, legal uh, legally binding status uh if if the you know it's a declaration of the European council then it has solemn force like a treaty um It would obviously have to be agreed. The wording would have to be agreed with with, uh, the British before the declaration was uh, made. And and as I say, as it isn't going to change anything in the treaty, that issue doesn't really arise.
0: Yes, if all all it's doing is explaining what's in the treaty in the first place. Is there any further concession, do you think, available on the EU side? Any any further room to manoeuvre that she could go back to London with and, and, and legitimately portray as an actual concession?
1: They, there is a very vague talk about amending the political declaration, which is this legal, uh, non-legally binding and political declaration on the future relationship, which is going to accompany the treaty. Uh, the text of that has been agreed. Uh, it is not as fixed as the the treaty because the language isn't legal for it, and, and it isn't legally binding as well. So there have been suggestions that she might like to amend that. The problem is what exactly she would do to amend that, and and uh, it's not really very clear because uh, the the text was actually quite sympathetic to uh, British positions on, on on a
0: lot of issues. And in that clip, we heard from Guy Verhofstadt at the start, the European Parliament's Brexit negotiator. He did open that possibility of of reopening the political declaration, but he seemed to be doing it from the point of view of you know if she wants to come closer to the to Europe, of course she's very welcome to.
1: And indeed, the European Union has said for, for for months that if the Britain if Britain wants to remove some of its red lines, well, then it will reopen uh, discussions. Now it's more difficult once the treaty has, has reached this state, um, but it's it's certainly always been the position of the union that if if Britain uh, wants to re, rethink uh, its red line issues,
0: then the union won't be found wanting. I should mention at this point, Paddy, that anybody who's still confused about the backstop can can read uh, more about it on, on irishtimes.com. If you go to the homepage there, there's a special section on Brexit. Um, but Paddy, just to wrap this up, as we mentioned, Theresa May is on her mini tour of Europe now. She's meeting Angela Merkel today and, and the Dutch Prime Minister. And then all of this leads into the EU summit at the end of the week. What are we expecting now from the summit now that this deal is not in place? And of course, people had hoped it would be ratified on the British side uh, by the House of Commons by this stage.
1: Well, there will be discussion which hadn't been expected on on Brexit. Um, uh, I think the foreign policy section of the summit has been shoved off uh, to one side and will be dealt with by by, uh, foreign ministers. Uh, But what exactly they will do beyond uh, stating that uh, they're very sorry for her her troubles and if there's anything they can do to help, they would like to do it, Um, as long as it's not reopening the treaty. That that really seems to me to be the extent of, of the discussion. The other thing is uh, that the uh, emphasis here has begun to move again towards um, uh, intensifying preparations for a no-deal Brexit uh, and making sure that everything is in place uh, if the worst comes to the worst. And the the problem with with her postponement of this vote is that it it
0: does appear to make that more likely and making people quite jittery. OK, Paddy, thanks for that. Next up, it's Suzanne Lynch on the Mueller investigation.
1: There's things in life you just can't control. Like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good. Because there's something you'll always be able to control. Your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution. Giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk control.
0: Since May 2017, the former FBI director Robert Mueller has been heading a special counsel investigation into allegations of Russian interference in the 2016 US presidential election. As his investigation apparently draws to a close, Donald Trump has maintained his attacks on it, describing it as a witch hunt run in the service of angry Democrats. But there have been developments in the special counsel's investigation in the past week which have turned up the heat on the US president and revived talks of a possible impeachment or perhaps charges being brought against him after he leaves office. Suzanne Lynch is on the line now from Washington. Suzanne, I might start with those developments of the past week. There there were court papers filed by the Mueller team in two cases, one involving Paul Manafort, a former chairman of Trump's campaign team, and the other involving Michael Cohen, his former personal lawyer. Maybe the, the Manafort case first, just bring us up to date on that Yes,
2: um, well, the Manafort case, there were filings lodged uh, here in Washington last Friday evening. Now, a lot of that information was heavily redacted, so it didn't yield as much information as many people had hoped. What's significant, though, is that Paul Manafort, who was charged on various offences back in August uh, and had subsequently been seeing out his time uh, before his trial in in solitary confinement uh, in a jail near here in Washington, D.C. Earlier in the week, uh, the Mueller investigators said that they were no longer cooperating with him, that he had effectively lied to prosecutors after striking a deal with uh, prosecutors. Um, so people were interested to see, would we have more information about that in these filings? And not much information was was in fact contained because so much information was redacted, but it did include some material. They said that um, he lied uh, to prosecutors saying um, that he had had no contact with any Trump administration officials after he signed his plea agreement. And he also lied about interactions with Konstantin Kilmanik. He's um, a former business associate of Manafort, who is believed to have tied to Russian intelligence. Um, And they also made comments about his other inaccurate statements. So it sounds now that Mr. Manafort is not cooperating with, with investigators. And of course, this has prompted speculation that the reason he's doing that is that he is at some point maybe seeking a presidential pardon from, from Mr. Trump. So that's where we are with uh, Paul Manafort.
0: And actually, Suzanne, I don't want to get sidetracked too much by Manafort, but just to remind people why he's in jail in the first place.
2: Yeah, the, he, there were various charges against him in August in two courts in Washington and in Virginia, but they were really to do with other issues, not particularly to do with President Trump. There's a separate to the Mueller investigation in a sense. And they were to do with lobbying. Um, he did huge work for a number of foreign governments, uh, including Uh, pro-Russian figures in Ukraine and travelled to Ukraine a a lot and did not disclose that activity with foreign entities. So that's the main reason uh, he was arrested. And other uh, tax issues, a lot of serious tax issues, not declaring income, etc. So, and Donald Trump, of course, has has stressed that that one of the main reasons uh, that Manafort is in legal trouble is, is because of these issues that were going on before he became involved with the Trump campaign. But of course, the key issue is that He was Trump's campaign manager um, during the time when uh, there there was Russian interference in the election. So that's what we understand the special counsel is probing. And then last week, significantly, the Guardian newspaper um, reported that Manafort visited Julian Assange, uh, who's in the Ecuadorian embassy. uh, And the suggestion being there that there may be a link between WikiLeaks uh, and the information, the incriminating uh, negative information about Hillary Clinton and Trump's campaign manager, accept, uh, effectively.
0: Although I think the, the Guardian has, has been backtracking to some degree from yeah, that story. Exactly, or it's, yes. it's, it's not quite, quite. It, it was only the up. Guardian
2: that reported that, absolutely. Yes. Yes, yes.
0: Now, um, in terms of the, the potential legal difficulties for Donald Trump, maybe the Michael Cohen case for, from the papers lodged in that case might have more significance. Just tell us about that mm. one.
2: Yeah, so Michael Cohn was Donald Trump's lawyer and fixer for about a decade or so. Uh, he worked closely with him in New York and was very much in the Trump inner circle. But that all changed last April when he was arrested. Um, there was a raid on his his property, on his on his home, in, in, on a hotel room, in his offices in New York, a very high profile raid, raid by the FBI. And since that, Again, we don't have all the details on that, but since that, essentially, uh, Michael Cohn has turned against Trump and he is cooperating with investigators. Now, the key issue that, again, we already knew this was that he has said he had arranged a payment to two adult film stars, including Stormy Daniels, uh, for Donald Trump. Um, now, Donald Trump supporters make the point, well, you know, he would have done that to protect Donald Trump's marriage. These alleged um Uh, d'alliances, to use that phrase, took place while he was married to Melania. But the issue, unfortunately, for Donald Trump and Michael Cohen is that prosecutors see this as a potential uh, violation of campaign finance laws, that effectively they paid off these women to keep them quiet during the election campaign so as to not damage Donald Trump's standing during the election. So that's where the legal difficulty is for Donald Trump. So on Friday, there were more papers filed on the Michael Cohen sentencing, he hasn't been sentenced yet, but a lot more information than that. And we saw the language from prosecutors were very, was very strong here. They said that Michael Cohen had broken campaign finance laws and in the process had deceived the voting public by hiding alleged facts uh, that he would have believed would have had a substantial effect on the election. And they talk about him seeking to influence the election from the shadows. And crucially, they say these papers that Donald Trump directed him, Donald Trump is referred to as individual one in these papers, they say that Donald Trump was um, absolutely involved with this it instructed him effectively to do this and that's why uh, Donald Trump could be in legal difficulty on that.
0: And again I suppose just to be clear there was a payment to one adult film star uh, Stormy Daniels on the other was to a uh, former Playboy model Carol McDougal. I hope I'm not making myself sound like an expert in, in this order. No they, you're right you're
2: 100% <laughs> right there. Chris. Yes, um, yes. And
0: how has Trump responded to these developments?
2: Well Trump essentially said that the papers on Friday uh, vindicated him. He said, totally clears the president, he said on Twitter. And to an extent, I think there was a sigh of relief at the White House because they knew these papers were coming and they were worried what was in them. But I think what we've seen over the last week is a huge, um, an upping of the ante in terms of Trump's rhetoric on this. He's really beginning to lash out even more at the special counsel prosecutor, calling it a witch hunt. Um, There's also been other bits of information, for example... Um, not to get sidetracked on this issue, but John Kelly, his White House chief of staff, has just been essentially let go by Donald Trump. And there were reports, again, we have to be careful, it was only one network, I believe, reported this, that John Kelly himself was interviewed by the special counsel, Robert Mueller. That's potentially significant because John Kelly only began a stint as chief of staff last August, so well into the Trump presidency. He was not around um, during the campaign, which, you know, Mueller has been looking at. So this would suggest or, or could imply that if the prosecutor is speaking to John Kelly, well, then it could be more on the issue of obstruction of justice, on how the Trump administration potentially tried to shut down the Mueller investigation. Um, so again, that's something to kind of, that's alarm bells ringing again, that the that special character is getting closer and closer to Donald Trump's inner circle. And of course, in the last few weeks, we know that Donald Trump submitted written answers to requests for information from Robert Mueller. Um, so that has happened in the last few weeks. Of course, nobody knows what's in those answers, but but Donald Trump does.
0: Despite Trump's continued attacks on, on the Mueller investigation, and he has ramped them up and ramped them up really th- throughout it, it has already had a considerable degree of success, hasn't it?
2: Yes, um, I think a lot, of, I think his strategy is to fight back, as, as he always does. And he's trying to get the message through to, to the public, and this will be supported like networks by networks like Fox News, that this is a witch hunt, that there's nothing really huge in this. And of course, history has a precedent here. Famously, Republicans who moved to impeach Bill Clinton 20 years ago, uh, ultimately suffered in the polls. The public did not think that that was the right thing to do. Um, and I think that lesson is weighing weighing very, very heavily on Democrats this time around. We saw during the midterm elections that Nancy Pelosi, uh, the, the head Democrat in the House, essentially instructed her troops, if you like, not to focus on impeachment, not to talk about the Mueller investigation, instead to talk about things like finance, healthcare, etc., bread and butter issues. Now, the big issue now for Trump, of course, is that we have a new Congress coming in and Democrats are now going to be in control in the House. So they they have the power to um, initiate impeachment proceedings, if they like. So that is why uh, Donald Trump uh, is now getting worried also, because he does not have the protection of a Republican controlled Congress from January, uh, the beginning of January.
0: And despite what Nancy Pelosi said, I mean, it does seem like some Democrats can't help themselves. I mean, in the last few days, we've had Jerry Nadler, who'd be the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. And he said Trump had committed impeachable offences. And there's also been talk from, you know, from other Democrats that maybe he'd face charges when when his presidency finishes and so on. Are these kind of realistic assessments or are some of these Democrats, perhaps do you think they're getting a bit overexcited, and Nancy Pelosi will sort of draw them back into line.
2: Yeah, no, I think you're right, Chris. I think not to, now that they are, are taking control. We, I think we're going to see a more aggressive stance. And the congressman you mentioned, Jerry Nadler, he's going to be a hugely significant figure in the next few months. He's chair of the Judiciary Committee, a very kind of combative guy. He's been very high profile in the media, um, and he has said uh, repeatedly that he is he is going to uh, subpoena records from Donald Trump he's going to, you know, come down hard on the president. But you're right, he did say at the weekend these were impeachable offences, but he he also uh, added something like, but we need to see, does this justify an impeachment? You know, he made the, you know, he 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 was making the point that technically they may have enough to um, initiate impeachment proceedings with Donald, for, against Donald Trump, but whether, you know, it really does merit an impeachment is another question. Um, but there's no doubt that he is really, um, settings of, of the major figure in this. Another person to watch is actually Richard Neal. He's a congressman from Massachusetts who was, he's, he's the chair of the Friends of Ireland Caucus in Capitol Hill, very involved in the peace process over the years. And he was quite a low profile congressman here. He has just been appointed chair of the Ways and Means Committee. That's a hugely important uh, committee, budgetary uh, committee in the House. And he has indicated that he may subpoena documents, and he will have the power to do so. Documents from Donald Trump relation to his taxes, his business dealings, which, of course, Donald Trump famously refused to disclose uh, before he was elected. So that would be one to watch as well. So from that from that perspective, in terms of their subpoena powers, they may well get a lot of information from Donald Trump, which which could end up leaking out. Um, but look, there is really a sense now, the Mueller investigation, it's going to report at some point, maybe not before Christmas, maybe early in the new year. Um, but, you know, only some people know what's in that uh Report, But Donald Trump himself said last week that himself and Rudy Giuliani are combining their own report that they're going to issue and um, when the report uh, is, is published by Mueller. Um, but there's no doubt now that he is feeling the heat politically, I think, because particularly Democrats are now in control in the House, uh, in Congress.
0: And when it does report, Susanna, I suppose a central issue really is the question of collusion and that is whether the Trump campaign actively colluded with Russia during the election campaign. And Trump keeps tweeting, you know, in capital letters, no collusion. um, Now, Mueller has had a lot of success. Charges have been brought against various parties, including, we didn't mention it earlier, Russian operatives who have been charged with with, um, hacking into the Democratic uh, server and, and so on during the campaign. But is there any indication that there will be a finding of collusion when all this is done?
2: Well, we don't know, but you're right. I mean, that's going to be the burden of proof there. It's going to be pretty high. One of the issues, the the suggestion about the Paul Manafort meeting with Wikipedia and also Roger Stone, who is very centrally involved in the Trump campaign, he is now coming under scrutiny because he tweeted, I think, the day before the first WikiLeaks uh, dump of emails. Um, You know, he he made a reference in, in a tweet that suggested perhaps he knew what was coming. Now, he's denied any any knowledge of this, but that's also problematic because if that's proven to be correct and there's any link between Roger Stone or Paul Manafort, well, then the question would be, did Donald Trump know about about this? They were working in his campaign. And if these that's why it's so crucial for Donald Trump that Paul Manafort doesn't turn against him, um, because if they can show any kind of paper trail or anything, um, although Donald Trump famously doesn't use email, but um, anything, maybe recordings that does suggest that Donald Trump is connected, then he could be in trouble. And that's why I think they're particularly worried about Michael Cohen, too, because Michael Cohen now has really decided to work with prosecutors. And he seemed to have been so much in the Trump inner circle. And we know that there was a recording before he made of Donald Trump instructing or apparently instructing him to pay Stormy Daniels that perhaps... Um, you know, he could be the link that that proves some kind of connection between Donald Trump. Or as you say, there may not be anything. And it may be just the people around him who are in legal jeopardy. Um, But one of the remarkable things, there have been so few leaks from the Mueller team that it is still very shady and people do not really know what's going to be in this report.
0: Um, and Suzanne, while you're on the line, we haven't had a chance to talk for a while and there are always so many issues to discuss in, in Washington, maybe a couple of other uh, things that are happening there. Today, for example, Tuesday, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck, Chuck Schirmer, the two senior Democrats in the, in the House and Senate are meeting Trump. Um, what's on mm. the agenda for, for that meeting?
2: Yeah, this is the first time in about a year that these two senior Democrats have gone to the White House. And in times gone by, this would have been pretty frequent that parties, you know, there was more bipartisan um you know, collegiality and commitment to get things done. In the last decade or so, that really has, you know, dissipated. Um, But today there is a meeting between Donald Trump and these two senior Democratic figures. And again, it's about um, funding. Uh, It's immigration. Basically, the the U.S. government is again facing a possible shutdown by the end of the year. One of the reasons being because of the George H.W. Bush funeral last week. Things were delayed in Congress, so uh, they're going to be sitting later into December. But there um, are still some bills, essentially spending bills outstanding, and they have to be agreed on um, by Congress. Now, um, one of those is connected with Department of Homeland Security, which is about immigration. So we are going to see a huge kind of debate today and uh, uh, a kind of a a negotiation, I suppose, about the border wall funding. So obviously Donald Trump is still trying to build his wall between America and Mexico. He He wants about five billion in the budget for this. Uh, but Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have said, um, you know, they are prepared to allow 1.3 billion for border security. And then they would probably um, fudge what exactly border security means, whether it's a physical wall, whether it is kind of um, some kind of, you know, wire or etc. But there's still a huge, you know, they're billions apart in terms of what's needed for this wall. Now, Pelosi, and this is the way politics works here, they were going to want to have something in exchange for even committing to some money for, the, for border security, and that could be something on DREAMers, the young people who arrive to America as children and are in legal, legal limbo. There's, that still hasn't been resolved, so they may want something on that. They may also technically be able to secure some kind of a temporary measure that brings them into next year, so we could see today that this all kind of dissipates, because Nancy Pelosi herself. She is hoping to become the next House Speaker, the top person in Congress, replacing Paul Ryan now that her party is in power. Um, She is facing her own difficulties, really, in in becoming House Speaker, although she probably will. Um, But she may not want some kind of a messy uh, budgetary row overseeing her first few days uh, in January. So we could see some kind of an extension that brings uh, funding or gives a temporary funding stopgap measure, maybe uh, for a few months, maybe up to six months a year. Um, but it, it's, it's going to be a kind of fiery meeting today in the White House. We're expecting Trump, Trump to uh, speak afterwards. Um, but if not, you could be looking at a, a government shutdown because, because, of course, Republicans know that they're losing control now of the House. So in the next few weeks, they're going to be trying to push you as much as they can um, through Congress before they leave and the new Congress uh, takes its place.
0: And it was remarkable in the last couple of weeks how much Trump did change his tone towards Nancy Pelosi and he suddenly started tweeting very positive things about her, having disparaged her for so long. Is that an indication actually that there there is a pragmatic side to him and that he actually might be uh, better at working with a a democratic majority House than we would have thought possible?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's two ways of looking at this. Nancy Pelosi has become a real hate figure really for the right here. She's kind of replaced Hillary Clinton on Fox News as a kind of a demon of the left. Um, And in a way a cynic would say that Donald Trump is quite happy to have her as a foil for the next two years, that this will really rile up his base, et cetera. But you're right, I think there is an extent that maybe he he is prepared to work with Nancy Pelosi. Um, obviously Donald Trump likes to style himself as a great deal maker and people, and I've spoken to people who've, who've at, been at meetings with Donald Trump who say, you know, he, he's much, he's more pleasant in that environment, that he is prepared to listen and, and he, he, as I say, he loves the idea of doing a deal. Um, And he doesn't take those kind of political differences that personally, um, because he doesn't really understand or have experience of the real bipartisan tensions on Capitol Hill. He's never really worked there. So there is an extent to which he may want to work with Democrats. And again, trying to maybe show himself as a statesman who's able to make compromise, particularly when he's in difficulty at the moment with the Mueller investigation, this might be a way of deflecting attention from that and trying to show, look, I'm a president who's getting things done and is prepared to work with Democrats on certain issues.
0: And and one other difficulty, Suzanne, to wrap up on, he's still looking Mm. for a new chief of staff.
2: Yes, that's the other um, really interesting story happening on Washington at the moment. John Kelly, his beleaguered chief of staff, eventually uh, Trump announced at the weekend that he would be leaving by the end of the year. But it did seem that he had expected Nick Ayers, he's a 36-year-old... political operative from Georgia, who'd been working with Mike Pence, the vice president, he'd expected him to take the job. And essentially, uh, Nick Ayers turned him down over the weekend. He said he's moving back to Georgia to spend time with his family. Um, But of course, a lot of people believe it's much more than that. And um, Mr. Ayers himself may have political ambitions and of course is worried about allying himself with Donald Trump. So essentially, we seem to have a situation now that Donald Trump is finding it difficult to find a chief of staff. Mick Mulvaney, um, the budget director, he's his name was out there, but he's his officials are strong, saying he's essentially not interested. He doesn't want the job. Um, One person now who's emerging as a candidate is Mark Meadows. He's a very conservative Republican who heads up the Freedom Caucus in, um, in the House. That's a group of about 40 right wing Republicans. And he's been a real champion of Donald Trump he may uh, be in the running. He's, he's at least the only person who seems to be interested in the post. So it'll be really crucial to see who gets in there that job. That was for so long the kind of pinnacle um, of Washington uh, to become a White House Chief of Staff. But now Donald Trump seems to be in a position that, that people don't want to work with him because they are worried about what's coming down the line, perhaps, in the Mueller investigation and how Donald Trump will handle that.
0: That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.